Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's The Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's episode, well, how to survive in the Ice Age. This is a really fun little episode. We're not going to be covering the whole of the Ice Age. That would be mad. But we are focusing in on an extraordinary prehistoric culture that lived some 25,000 years ago and had to survive in a terrible climate, eating a diet almost exclusively, we believe, of mammoth. So how did they do this? How were they able to survive? Well, today's guest is the author Cody Cassidy. Now Cody, he's big on TikTok and he's also released this new book which explores how people were able to survive in very difficult conditions all throughout history and prehistory. For instance, there's another chapter exploring how you could have survived the eruption of Mount Vesuvius if you were in Pompeii in 79 AD. Hint there, get out early. But I digress. Cody's here today to talk all about surviving in the Ice Age, and I really do hope you enjoy. Cody, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. You've written this guide to surviving through these various terrifying events in history. It must have been quite a fun experience writing this, going from, well, the Ice Age that we're talking about today, all the way to, to more recent deadly events too. Yeah, you know, the idea started, I, I read a study that, funnily enough, suggested that you could outrun or a person could outrun the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and they sort of delved deep into that science. And I found it kind of a fascinating way to learn about ancient history. And I sort of wanted to expand that onto other times and disasters and cultures because I sort of felt like it gave you a grounded perspective rather than a sort of 40,000 foot view that we often get from history. I sort of liked more like turn left or turn right or the sort of gruesome details about these different events that sort of gave you a little bit of entertainment and also a lot you could pack a lot of information to these Dude, much more than a list of entertainment as you say it's gruesome but it also incredibly entertaining too and the right answer there that you started off with ancient history and then you went from there because that is the place to start and with our talk today 
on the Ice Age? I mean, first off, when you're looking at these topics, you say you start with Tyrannosaurus Rex, so down in dinosaur times. I mean, why did you decide the Ice Age is another one of these topics to cover? You know, I think in looking at the topics, I wanted to focus on a lot of events that I feel like I had heard about or people had heard about, but didn't know that well. And another factor I wanted was to, I like to talk about, I'm sort of a, a background as a science writer. And so I wanted there to be a science component to most of these as well. And, and I found that in sort of trying to understand exactly why the Ice Age even happened, uh, why the planet cools and warms so dramatically over different time periods. And it was something as I thought about, I realized I understood very poorly. So I wanted to dive into that. And then I also wanted to just understand how people with sticks and stones as, as weapons could bring down a mammoth, which seems impossible and impossibly dangerous. I mean, absolutely. And we're going to definitely get into that. But I really like what you highlighted there about these names from history which we think we know a lot about, like a name like the Ice Age. But when you delve into it, I mean, what actually is the Ice Age? So that seems like a nice way to start it off, Cody. I mean, how far back can we go with the Ice Age? What do we mean by the Ice Age? So to begin with, the Ice Age is a bit of a misnomer, at least if you're talking to a climate scientist, because technically they define an Ice Age as any time ice permanently covers the Northern Hemisphere which if you look at our Northern Hemisphere now, it, it does. Uh, so this, we actually are living in a ice age and we have been for the last three million years. So when you're talking about sort of what popular culture defines as the ice age is actually sort of the last glacial maximum. And of course the climate changes dramatically over millions of years. This was before this, I mean, if we go back to the Triassic and the dinosaur period, you could have swum in the Arctic Ocean as sort of uh, fern forested beaches. But I became interested in why three million years ago this sort of uh, dramatic climate change occurred. And it, it turns out that that is, of course, our climate is dictated by carbon in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide. It sort of serves as our planet's insulation, uh, it captures heat. And so the more carbon is in the atmosphere, the warmer the climate is. And uh, if we want to get into the weeds, it's it's oh, kind of absolutely, interesting. mate. Yeah, <laughs> let's go into the weeds. Absolutely, let's delve right into it. <laughs> okay, so the vast majority of carbon dioxide in on Earth is exists in rocks, right? So the primary method in which it's released from rocks is, of course, volcanic activity. There have been enormous volcanic eruptions that have released vast amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that's what, prior to the Industrial Revolution, can heat up the Earth. But the opposite of that is, the, is, of course, rock creation. That occurs um, much less spectacularly and on a longer scale, but it nevertheless decreases the Earth. So 200 million years ago at the end of the Triassic, to give an example, a massive 500-year volcanic eruption released about a million cubic miles of lava and warmed up the planet about five degrees. Uh, this is actually about the same amount of carbon dioxide that humans have released, all of humans have released, in that one, 75% of species died. So we are in the process of, of something similar to that. And so if we go from 200 million years ago to that other date which you hinted at, which you highlighted earlier, which is 3 million years ago, which seems to be like the beginning of the Ice Age, what is this massive event that seems to occur around there which really almost triggers this great shift? Right. So 3 million years ago, there's a massive tectonic collision the collision between Northern Australia and the, and the Indonesian plate, which is still ongoing. And this, of course, raises up a ton of fresh, what they call mafic rock, a, a, a type of magma. 
And this new rock is loaded with, with minerals, calcium and, and magnesium. And when it, when it hits, it, particularly in the equator where there's lots of uh, rain, uh, it, this fresh mafic rock erodes. It combines with dissolved carbon dioxide in the ocean, and it sort of sequesters this carbon dioxide, which was otherwise uh, going back and forth between the ocean and the atmosphere, into vast beds of limestone rock primarily. So this, over a long period of time, what's happening is a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and in the water is being locked away in rocks. And this is sort of removing oceans, or removing the uh, Earth's blanket, so to speak, and Earth begins to cool. And this is sort of a pattern that we see going way back hundreds of million years. Primarily when there are ice ages, there are, uh, the cause is a massive tectonic collision but only in the tropics where there's lots of rain and lots of erosion and, and lots of carbon dioxide is being sequestered. But it's so interesting, isn't it, how an event there in that part of the world, you know, and you can have parallels with, let's say, the asteroid strike or anything like that. An event that occurs in one part of the world, you say, in the tropics, but it has consequences for the entirety of the world for millions of years to follow. I mean, as a scientist, science is not by background, but facts like that just absolutely astonish me. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for us to comprehend because this is happening on such a the geologic time frame is so much longer than than anything any sort of time frame that humans are familiar with. So, it's difficult to comprehend how how slow but how impactful uh, these processes are. What's also interesting about this is that when you think of the Ice Age, it's not one continuous line of just always ice over certain parts of the world. All these interglacial periods you get to, you also get these warm periods also mentioned, well, that also occur. Yeah, so we are in an Ice Age now, but we are in a, a sort of glacial minimum. And of course, 25,000 years ago, there was what they call the last glacial maximum, which is sort of in what popular culture we refer to as the Ice Age. And these are dictated by smaller amounts of changes of carbon in the atmosphere. But carbon changes nonetheless, and it, these caused these are caused by uh, as Earth rotates, it sort of wobbles a bit like a like a spinning top, and these wobbles occur on forty thousand year cycles. So we sort of the Earth sort of slowly tilts toward uh, the sun and slowly tilts away. And this tilting isn't actually enough. It's not as if we are dramatically closer to the sun and therefore receiving a lot more heat. It's it's far less significant than that. But what it does do is change ocean currents in the and these ocean currents, because carbon can be sequestered in the sort of carbon dioxide passes between the air and the ocean. As these ocean currents change, it turns out when we sort of tilt away, a lot more carbon is carbon dioxide is sequestered within the water, within the oceans. And so this about 25,000 years ago, the amount of carbon dioxide was about 65 percent of current or I should say pre-industrial human levels. So this caused dramatic cooling. It was about temperature was about 15 degrees on average cooler back then than it is now. And of course, massive uh, glaciation. So let's go back there for 25,000 years to the glacial maximum that you mentioned earlier. And if we focus in on, let's say, the European step, which I know you focused in on on your book, Eastern Europe today. Now, what did this area of the world look like 25,000 years ago? Yes, it's quite difficult to imagine. So Glaciers or uh, ice sheets basically were covering all of Northern Europe, um, Scandinavia. These are as high as skyscrapers, sometimes even, even higher, almost as much as a mile. And people are living sort of at the base of these almost, uh, right where they stop on tundra, 
But the ice had a different effects to it because the massive ice sheet sort of blocked moisture from from the Atlantic. So rainfall was it was very little. These were um, very dry areas. Uh, but the soil was really rich because of all the glacial deposits. So you had sort of an interesting dichotomy where in the highlands it was basically Arctic desert, but in the lowlands where there were river flowing, it was very lush. And so you had a lot of um, fauna. And the fauna was was a kind of interesting fauna because it's animals that we're familiar with, but they're sort of living in odd uh, juxtaposition. You sort of had packs of lions chasing reindeer, or uh, you had you know bears, wolves, and woolly rhinoceroses, but you also had cheetah and uh, other animals that we would think of as living in hot African deserts or savanna. So it was a kind of uh, familiar but unfamiliar landscape. And you also have some very well-known extinct fauna, or should I say megafauna, living in that area of the world too, don't you? Yes, cave bears and, and woolly rhinoceroses, and of course the, the, the big woolly mammoth, which I really became interested in and just because it was such an unbelievably powerful creature that humans somehow hunted. I mean, who, and who can blame you? Apart from maybe some of the dinosaur species, I think of all extinct species in the world, I mean, the woolly mammoth is the one that gauges so much attention because we find them absolutely incredible and fascinating. And we will get back to them very soon. So we've got all of these fauna living alongside this rich area, this rich landscape, if we're not thinking of the highland Arctic deserts. But who were the people, the homo sapiens, the communities that were coexisting in this part of the world? Well, we call them the Gravititan culture. The, uh, this is the culture that spanned across Europe at the time. Well, they varied, but they were, uh, in general, quite tall, surprisingly. More like uh, the men averaged almost six feet in height. And uh, women were a bit, a bit smaller, averaged about five foot two. They were slender. Um, they were mobile cultures that moved with herds, at least in the in Eastern Europe. Interestingly, they had high cheekbones. So it would have been a sort of a runway look, almost a, a model, <laughs> the tall, slender, high cheekbone sort of model on the runway almost. And then, of course, they were materially, they're sort of famous for having these um, carvings, the Venus figurines that are sort of uh, voluptuous women. How they use them or what they represented is a matter sort of of speculation. It's hard to define why someone uses or looks at art, whether they were for religious purposes or not is difficult to say, but certainly very sophisticated culture, sophisticated burials, carved tools, even textiles, and sort of wore these thick parka-like clothing out of small animals that they probably trapped, like wolverine and fox. I mean, that's fascinating. I love how you know more. You also know about the clothing as well, because I'm guessing to try and piece together more about this culture, these people, it's looking at those archaeological remains that I guess can be sometimes really few and far between, but trying to piece together what life must have been like for these people during this incredibly difficult time, you know, the glacial maximum some 25,000 years ago. Yeah, the, of course, the clothing doesn't survive this long. And so they sort of, you can look at the bones of the animals that they hunted and you can find animals like wolverine which or small fox, which wouldn't have made much sense to catch for their meat. So presume that they would have used uh, for clothing. And there's also a couple of figurines that have hoods that look like they have hoods on them. So I sort of presume that this was like a, a parka-like uh, clothing. And, and then, of course, there's bone needles, too, that signify perhaps sewing. 
Now, you mentioned Gravettian culture, but what about the Pavlovian culture? What, what, what is this in the regards to it? This is, yeah, a subset of the Graviteton that I became pretty interested in because they're sort of these odd mammoth hunting specialists that were living in, the, in Eastern Europe and in, in what is now Poland. And in some of their camps, they have, they're sort of 98% of the bones are, are mammoth bones. And they're sort of roving. They move with mammoth herds, it looks like. And they specialized in hunting this awesome creature, which I found fascinating. I mean, absolutely. Of all the creatures living there, of all of the fauna in these rich, nutrient-rich areas of the Ice Age, they choose what is arguably the most difficult prey animal at all. I mean, it is absolutely fascinating. And that is from the archaeological remains. Is it from bones found in these camps, as you highlighted? Yeah, they just they'll look at the camps around these. These were temporary camps, so they were probably, you know, they had to move with the herds as the herds moved. But in some of them, yes, they'll just be massive, a massive, massive bones, and, and nearly all of them, in some cases, virtually all of them are, are mammoths. So it looks like they were just, like, as I said, mammoth hunting specialists. And do we have any idea why hunting a mammoth was so appealing to these people? I mean, was there something in the meat of the mammoth that was really appealing? Well, the, their size, I mean, uh, if you can catch one, it would have certainly made uh, an absolute bonanza the amount of meat and, and not just the meat, but their bones for tools. And there weren't trees or very many trees at this, uh, at this latitude. So they had to, must have had to use probably their bones for even their fires. You certainly would have had to cook the meat and without much wood, it, they could have used their bones to cook their food. And smaller animals, of course, wouldn't have provided nearly as much as that. And so it was a, certainly a great risk, but the reward was also great as well. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. So let's go on to hunting one of these mammoths. What sorts of weapons, therefore, of sticks and stones, what weapons are we talking about? There's a few misconceptions. A lot of, at least in popular culture, we think they sort of pushed them off cliffs or trapped them in that way. And that doesn't appear to be the case, actually, at all. They found some of these ancient hunting sites and they used primarily spears, but not spears that we would commonly think of. This is not they're not throwing spears at mammoths. If mammoth skin was as thick as an elephant's, that, as you can imagine, would have been highly ineffective. Um, it would have been turned a dangerous activity into absolute suicide. So what they used are these, what they call atlatls or spear throwers. 
And these are simple tools, basically just a stick. Actually, they've sort of become popular, a version of them has become popular around dog parks lately, is if you've seen those tennis ball throwers, which if you pick up a tennis ball and, and, and can throw it, and it can add a huge amount of distance to your throw, and it's adding another uh, piece of leverage to your throwing arm, so it's like, sort of like having a second elbow. And just by doing that, you can take what would be sort of a mammoth tickler, a thrown spear, and, and hurl it uh, speeds above of 60 miles an hour. And you don't make quite the same spears as you would a sort of handheld spear. It's a little bit longer. Some, it looks more like a dart. But it, in the hands of a, an experienced thrower, it can be quite the lethal weapon. And do we have any evidence from archaeology regards to the effectiveness of a weapon like that? He's got, you've got your atlatl, you've got your spear, you've got them combined together, and you're about to throw it, let's say, at a mammoth. Do we have any idea how much it would potentially do any damage to a mammoth? There isn't a lot of archaeological evidence, but I found one really fascinating discovery in, um, in a Pavlovian site in, in Poland where they found a obsidian spearhead stuck into the bone of a mammoth, which just to make it past the skin can signify how deep this thing and how fast it would have had to have been going to impact that deeply into the mammoth. And certainly it wouldn't have been an individual sport. It would have been the whole groups of people throwing lots of, of atlatls at, at a mammoth. Uh, one, one wouldn't have done it at all. So it definitely lots of people. And in this particular site, it was kind of a cul-de-sac so that it looks like they probably drove one mammoth into a dead end and then hurled their darts at it. You mentioned a good point there, Cody, of course, of the fact that the prehistoric hunter-gatherer communities, how everyone will have a role, how it's so necessary for people to learn to hunt from a young age, and then how, of course, if they're out hunting, they'll be hunting in large groups. So not to imagine one person with an assassin, but them to be in a massive group. In regards, therefore, to hunting mammoths, and you mentioned that cul-de-sac, I mean, do we have any ideas how they would go about hunting a mammoth as you also highlighted this is this is an animal that's in herds do we have any idea how therefore they would be able to maybe isolate one of these one of these massive beasts yeah it looks like their camps were up on hills often and they'd be up above where the mammoths would would come in and into these river valleys and so they could watch them coming and then they would probably identify certainly female mammoths um, not necessarily surprisingly small mammoths the bones don't look like they were hunting um, sick or even old mammoths primarily, it, but certainly female mammoths. Ma male mammoths, bull mammoths are, can be dangerous, particularly um, when they're in a period called must, quite similar to elephants. They'll attack anything. They'll attack birds, even trees sometimes. So they probably wouldn't have been allow themselves to be herded, whereas a female mammoth might be because you need to, of course, trap it so that it can no longer run away. So they would probably identify a large female mammoth, try to herd it away, get it away from the herd, drive it away from the herd into their, their sort of designated kill zone, which was in, in this Polish site is sort of, um, they're not cliffs, it's, it's just, it's just a, um, a sort of on three sides, there are sort of uh, rock walls to prevent it from, from escaping. So then once they had it uh, in there, we can and then as far as how they, they attacked it, we can sort of take a lot of lessons from elephant hunters because their activities, their sort of means would have been the same, although their tools would have been quite different, which is that uh, the rear of, a, of an elephant and probably of a mammoth was, is basically impenetrable, unfortunately, for the hunters. So you would have had to, to face it and to face the massive tusks and uh, throw your spear at a very angry 
very heavy animal. Because as soon as you throw in your spear, that animal, that massive beast is going to be absolutely pissed off with you and is going to be charging right down at you. It's really difficult just to imagine, I mean, hunting in that world, in that environment. You know, the glacial maximum that we highlight is so cold and you, you need this meat for your survival. And if you miss your shot or you miss throw your ass lateral and you've got a mammoth coming down towards you with tusks bearing down at you, you're as good as gone. It's, it's a fascinating well, horrific lifestyle to kind of envisage. Yeah, I don't... I mean, we can see how they did it, but even when you know how they did it, it's sort of astonishing that they did. I mean, to do the research for this, I sort of read some accounts of African uh, elephant hunters, and and they describe the the charge of an an elephant as the scariest event of hunting any animal in, in Africa, including lions. It's simply terrifying and dangerous, even now with modern guns and high powered elephant guns. So you can only imagine what it would have been like. And it's sort of funny that before they started finding these dart heads and spearheads and the bones of of mammoth, there was a lot of archaeologists who sort of wondered if these bones that they found in these mammoth, in these, these human camps were simply scavenged. Even though they found massive amounts of these bones, they sort of still couldn't believe that they could hunt these creatures. You needed this sort of smoking gun that is clearly hunted creatures with these dart heads in their vertebrae and stuff before they could believe that this actually occurred. And it is such an extreme, and it's an extraordinary example from the Ice Age that you focused on in your book, that we focused on in today's episode, isn't it? Because it's the combining of this very difficult time in the Ice Age, so 25,000 years ago, alongside trying to live this lifestyle against one of the biggest land animals in the region it's almost like you are combining two incredibly different difficult scenarios merging them together putting these people into that environment and saying right go for it try and survive it's it must have been a fascinating study to research when looking at life in the ice age yeah it's you wouldn't believe it except for it happened clearly (laughs) you know just you wouldn't believe they survived you wouldn't believe that not only these cultures that survived on a, a range of large animals, but then this subculture of the Pavlovian that survived on specifically mammoths, these mammoth hunting specialists. You sort of, like these archaeologists that first found these cultures, it's you only believe what they actually did as a sort of last resort when all else has been proven otherwise. It's otherwise just sort of impossible to imagine how they did it. Now, before we completely wrap up, are there any key messages that you'd like listeners to take away about surviving in the ice age let's say if we were thrown into eastern europe at this time into the pavlovian culture any tips or any important words <laughs> well all i can say is that you're going to have to to hunt these mammoth if you're going to want to eat clearly and i would say craft an atlatl which is uh not too difficult fortunately just a simple stick with a bone at the end to, to latch your dart onto get that obsidian sharpened and and attached to the end of your dart and then you're going to have to make sure to not go alone you're going to have to be a a team player and go with lots of other people not not just that help you throw the dart but that uh the mammoth might chase instead of you sort of lowers your lowers your odds of being trampled and then unfortunately when you trap the mammoth don't trap more than one and when you trap it you're going to have to wait till it faces you to throw your dart otherwise it will simply be useless so Throw your dart and uh, 
hopefully it doesn't, when it angers and charges, which it will, hopefully it doesn't charge after you. Well, Cody, this has been great. Of course, this is just one chapter of your How to Survive book. We focused in on the Ice Age, but you cover several other massive events from ancient history too, don't you? Yeah, I, I, I spanned quite a lot of not just human history, but even a few before that. As I said, the sort of, I'd like to, to focus on the sort of spectacular disasters that exemplify a period in history and that there's something sort of deeper uh, to say about them, either uh, scientifically or historically, that I think. So we not just learn about how to escape these, these different disasters and what happened at that moment, but sort of the events leading up to them and sort of uh, what the, the results of what changed in human culture after them. Could we really survive the asteroid strike <laughs> that wiped out the dinosaurs? Well, this one, I have to admit, the experts I spoke with needed quite a bit of cajoling to uh, even suggest that there was a chance. I mean, our ancestors, which this was 65, 66 million years ago, they survived. And they were quite a bit different looking than us, of course. They sort of uh, resembled a shrew-like creature. In fact, no mammal larger than uh, basically a raccoon survived the impact of, of this asteroid. So the chances of you surviving are limited, but I would, <laughs> I would suggest if you were... On the Eastern Hemisphere, the, uh, the asteroid, which was about six miles wide and, and traveling at about 10 miles per second, impacted the what is now Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. And it, the force with which it impacted is almost unimaginable. It was sort of probably about 100 million times the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated. So if you were in Texas, it would have, would have killed you. If you were in even as far as New York, it would have deafened you. And, and it would have, if, if there had been any glass, it would have shattered it basically across the entire Western Hemisphere. And then, and then there, of course, there were tsunamis that were more than a thousand feet high and across the Gulf Coast and even 600 feet high in Europe. And then after that, it got worse. There's sort of all of this material that it ejected from the impact site. If you can imagine the, it actually at, at this pressure, sort of uh, rock behaves a bit like a fluid. So it's sort of very similar actually to sort of a cannonball, cannonball or hitting a pool and this sort of sploosh of earth that lifted up was, was about 25 trillion tons of, of rock and earth sort of at speeds that some of which uh, exited our orbit, but most of which fell back down to Earth. And as it did, it sort of uh, incinerated in the atmosphere and sort of fell as fiery chunks and it sort of basically ignited forest fires throughout the world, which is the only dinosaurs that did survive were probably the ground nesting birds, because even birds that uh, there was almost no forest left after the global firestorm. And then even beyond that, the most difficult part to survive would have been uh, there's quite a bit of oil in the Yucatan, and so this was vaporized and then spread about the uh, stratosphere as a kind of black paint, which took almost 10 years to come down because this was above the rain clouds. And this black paint dropped sunlight by 90%. Global temperatures fell by an average of 50 degrees. So if you can imagine the Ice Age, they fell about 15. This was 50 and basically saw, stopped all evaporation, so there was almost no rainfall. And so the only area in which um, I think it would have been possible for for a, for, a time, for someone like us to survive would have been somewhere in in maybe Indonesia inside a deep deep cave where it was near the equator it was still live, a livable temperature. Well, there we go. Slight tangent on the end, but thank you for answering my question all about that. As mentioned, we focus more on the Ice Age today, Cody. This has been great. Uh, last but certainly not least, the book you have written, which covers all of these how to survive scenarios, is called. It's called How to Survive History. How to Survive History. And of course, you've got a popular TikTok account too, I believe. Oh, yeah. Over the last few months, I've been sort of um, trying to make videos, little explainers, little quick one-minute explainers for 
different disasters uh, sort of that I cover in the book, um, all the way up to the Titanic and other, I talk about Pompeii, surprisingly survivable, <laughs> how to survive ancient Egypt and darkest year of the dark ages. So I try to make little one minute explainers on, in case anybody's curious how you could have survived events like that. You're absolutely right. You know, Pompeii, if they got out early enough, they could easily get clear of the volcano. But that is another story entirely. <laughs> Cody, it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Well, there you go. A slightly different episode to what we usually have on The Ancients, but let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you would like some more of these fun how-to-survive themed episodes on The Ancients, and we may well do quite a few more in the future. We've got lots of ancient cultures to choose from, after all. Now, last things from me, you know what I'm going to say. If you have enjoyed The Ancients, you're enjoying the show, well, you can help us out by leaving us a lovely rating on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get to your podcast from. It's really easy and it does really help as we continue our everlasting mission to grow the podcast and to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. But that's enough from me and I will see you in the next episode. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.